0: How do your patients, your new patients,
1: react when you mention to them the word and the idea of meditation? Well, this is the problem. Would this be so weird that nobody would be interested in doing this at all? Give me a break. What are you talking about, meditation, yoga, to make it even worse? And so we had no idea, and this had never been tried before in a medical center, whether people, mainstream Americans, this is not uh, Berkeley, would, uh, would go for a clinic the foundation of which was intensive training in meditative disciplines. That's John Kabat-Zinn speaking with journalist Bill Moyers in the 1993 documentary Healing from Within. Years earlier, in 1979, at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, Kabat-Zinn launched a revolutionary program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR. The intent of the program was to introduce mindfulness meditation practice as a way to help people with stress, anxiety, depression, and even physical pain. Now I know most of you are likely familiar with the term, but I just wanted to define more clearly the definition of mindfulness. According to the Foundation for Mindful Society, mindfulness is, quote, the basic human ability to be fully present, aware of where we are and what we're doing and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us, end quote. Now, heading into those early MBSR sessions at UMass, Kabat-Zinn, who's now in his mid-70s and is actually a molecular biologist by training, he had been a longtime meditator in the Zen Buddhist tradition. And despite, as we just heard, his early concerns that people might be turned off by some of the religious underpinnings of meditation practice, he quickly discovered that the everyday New Englanders he was working with began reporting positive results from the program. They were experiencing less pain and more relief. Flash forward to today, and there are over 1,000 certified MBSR instructors teaching mindfulness techniques in almost 300 hospitals and medical centers around the world. Within the science community, the number of randomized control trials involving mindfulness jumped from one during the period of 1995 to 1997, to a whopping 216 from 2013 to 2015. Also, 52 papers were published in scientific journals on the subject of mindfulness in 2003. By 2012, that number had jumped to 477. Outside of the scientific world, just look in your phone's app store where you'll find an endless scroll of mindfulness meditation apps, In fact, according to the Financial Times, in 2017, there were nearly 1,300 meditation apps ready for download. 1,300! So why is mindfulness meditation suddenly so popular? Well, for starters, there's a growing body of scientific evidence to support its benefits. The Harvard Gazette reports that recent studies show benefits against an array of conditions, both physical and mental, including helping to counter stress, chronic pain, and other ailments such as psoriasis, anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And mindfulness courses these days can be found everywhere from schools to prisons to sports teams. One of the most popular meditation apps right now, Headspace, actually claims to be the official mindfulness partner of the United States women's national soccer team. The trendy fitness apparel company Lululemon is now advertising mindful clothing for men. There's also Mindful Meats, Mindful Mints, and Sherwin-Williams sells a paint color they call Mindful Gray. My personal favorite, though, has to be Mindful Mayo, which you can actually buy now at your local Whole Foods for $5.99. But are there possible downsides to mindfulness being fully embraced by capitalists? As David Gellis writes in the New York Times, quote, with so many mindful goods and services for sale, it can be easy to forget that mindfulness is a quality of being, not a piece of merchandise." End quote. I'm Jonathan Beasley, and this is the Harvard Religion Beat, a podcast examining religion's underestimated and often misunderstood role in society. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Berlin, meditation teacher, instructor at Harvard Divinity School, and a counselor to Buddhist students at Harvard. I wanted to get his insight into this mainstreaming of meditation and what he thinks the reasons are for today's mindfulness boom. I'll also talk to Chris about the potential issues faced in our new digital mindfulness landscape, as well as how small benefits can lead to lasting positive change. So Chris, one thing I wanted to start with is that this idea of mindfulness, even though it seems like such a current buzzword, it didn't just start in the 1970s with John Kabat-Zinn. This has actually been around for a long time, right? Since the early Buddhist teachings.
0: So basically, that there's the teaching. There are the mindfulness teachings, uh, the commentaries on the teachings, and uh, the formal practice. Now, <clears throat> how we understand mindfulness today is, I think, really multifaceted. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, John Kabat-Zinn, who was kind of the father of our Uh, stress reduction, practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness really geared there to um, foster a sense of health, well-being, really flourishing both in mind and body. So it really has become a mind-body practice in that context.
1: Is mindfulness simply the secular approach to meditation?
0: Well, it it can be a very subjective approach. kind of phenomena, f- depending on the person. And, uh, you know, we do have the Jon Kabat-Zinn, the MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Model, uh, which tends to present itself in more secular terms, uh, skillfully, to, to, to be amenable to the medical field and to uh, what we might call real-world problems around clinical matters, depression, anxiety, illness, that kind of thing. And so that certainly uh, has a place in terms of how we approach ourselves and what we're carrying from the standpoint of like coming into breathing, coming into body, coming into senses um, to cultivate a sense of well being, a greater sense of well being. Hmm. Um, There's also, but however, we can also see uh, mindfulness again contextualized deeply within a religious tradition as a means to getting to this place called nirvana. Um, and so in that sense, the presupposition there, right, as we talked about earlier at the very beginning of that sutra, of that teaching, that this is all we really need to get to a place of the state that we call nirvana, is a pretty radical thing to say. It's um, hmm. The presupposition there is that there is this potential soteriological benefit Not just, I'm healthy and I'm happy, but I'm enlightened. (laughs) And so that can pose a bit of a problem for a lot of people encountering that, with maybe a healthy form of skepticism, perhaps. So I think, you know, if we say, is mindfulness secular, is it not? I think it really depends. Um, I would say that mindfulness, rather than being secular or non-secular, is fundamentally human. Hmm. and is just at its core a human practice that can open doors
1: when people first try to meditate when you first try that mindfulness practice it can be incredibly difficult and in a way feels unnatural or uncomfortable at least so if you're saying this idea of mindfulness is a very human quality how do people who struggle to achieve that get there
0: yeah good question um Part of it is, again, has to do with uh, what one teacher of mine once said, regrading the pavement, (laughs) which is (laughs) we're undoing the habitual by practicing mindfulness. Mm. We're sort of unhooking ourselves from the habitual relationships that we have with our own thoughts and our own experiences. Mm. And so, you know, that process takes some time. It's not like you'll sit once, maybe you will. Maybe you'll have an experience. I've actually had people who've come to sit with me. And that first time they just open into this like space where they go, wow, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, to expect that is a setup. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a setup. And so uh, part of what we're doing is retraining, first of all, and this is why I think uh that the Buddhist view of meditation is can be very helpful in that we're using ordinary experiences of being in our body um, of paying attention to our senses of paying attention to the breath and how the breath feels, first noticing even where the breath is, am I breathing in a shallow way or am I actually able to just take that slightly deeper and notice a change there. We're noticing things that are already happening within the body. We're just paying attention in a different way and cultivating a sense of stability of mind, of concentrative attention so that all of those other things, this ruminating, this like mo- what we call monkey mind that wants to just run away with our awareness, with our attention, that we're able to see it for what it is and bring it back. So we're retraining the mind to stay uh, with things that are actually wholesome supports for mm-hmm. uh, our practice. And that does take some cultivation. It takes some practice.
1: We live in such a plugged-in world today, and I guess I'm wondering if you've noticed a change in how people practice mindfulness meditation.
0: Yeah, I think one of the changes that I would point to here is um, are some of the the advances that we've made by doing empirical research into mindfulness um that there is almost a guarded confidence in what mindfulness can do for us
1: in terms of the uh physical well-being this the yeah. research has gone into it reduction of stress and exactly. some of these other particular physical ailments
0: right right that that mindfulness actually is has not just mindfulness but also compassion meditations, uh, some of the research suggests that it, for example, lowers inflammation in the body. I mean, who would have thought? But that is documented at least. And of course, more research needs to be done there. But um, everything from building gray matter in the frontal lobe of the brain to uh, increased attentional focus to um, good outcomes around stress responses in the physical body, cognitive functioning, in children. Um, yeah, benefits, emotional regulation. So I mean, we, there is enough uh, research there to kind of validate that, you know, mindfulness and or meditation has real world benefits for us, both physically, mentally, emotionally. And so I think that has given uh, our society some real, conf- some guard, as I say, guarded confidence about the fact that there's a real merit to this. So that I think has changed and has also allowed for an opening for people, more people to be curious.
1: With so many mindfulness meditation apps out there now, along with other digital resources, videos on YouTube, et cetera, is there a risk that people are getting a kind of watered down version of mindfulness?
0: And if we think about it from the standpoint of, you know, a pebble dropping into a pond, let's say an experience of an app like Headspace, mm-hmm, Uh, maybe for like a five or ten minutes, is like a little pebble dropping into a pond. The question is there, I think, does that ripple effect from that pebble dropping, does it reach, how far does it reach? Mm. You know, um, my opinion is that no matter how gentle the pebble drops in, every part of that pond is affected in some way. It may be very subtle. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are no more pebbles dropping into that pond. Whereas if you, Take a larger rock and you throw it in, uh, which might be someone going on a on a retreat mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that those ripples reach every part of the pond in maybe a more obvious or intense way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what size ripple is created it really still I think leaves us with with some benefit
1: so maybe just to expand on that question then, as a meditation teacher yourself. Is there a thought or concern that people might not have a positive mindfulness experience via an app because maybe the teacher isn't qualified enough or the consultant to the app developer or the instruction is insufficient um, or things like that?
0: I think as a practical question, there is always that potential. Mm. Yeah. Um, Everything that I've seen. Uh, and I know that some of those apps actually rely on monks to do the guided practice. Um, I personally haven't seen that process abused. Uh, it seems as if the people who feel uh, as if they really have something to offer have practiced and often are in teaching roles already. Mm. So, but what I'm saying really points us to the importance of having a teacher. Mm -hmm. of some kind and knowing who the teacher is matters um and that's especially true if somebody i think wants to take their practice to the next level it's one thing maybe if you you use an app five minutes a day Mm -hmm. at your job just to kind of calm down a little bit maybe get a little bit of uh, of nourishment through your breathing and then can continue working and that's there's nothing wrong with that again you know it's how can i become a better human being
1: right there's there's so many different reasons why people practice mindfulness meditation as well as a number of ways to to actually practice right different
0: practices for different person uh, personalities different characteristics and tendencies some people really t- like i'm i'm somebody who loves visualization exercises mm-hmm. i just i'm a very visual person by nature mm-hmm. and so if there's a visualization meditation uh on the subtle physiology or what have you you know i take to it immediately and mm. s- but some people have a really hard time visualizing and for them maybe it's more about really sort of settling into stillness mm. you know less doing and more opening mm. and that works for them um for others loving kindness meditation is really where it's at for them their heart opens and it changes their lives when they practice that And that's what resonates with them the most what they feel like they need the most in their lives. So, I mean, we have all these wonderful, this richness of practices available to us. Um, I think the key is to give whatever we're practicing a chance. Really put it to the test, see if it's true for us and give it a chance to work. It can be easy to kind of bird hop from one thing to another and feel like, wow, I, I don't really feel like I'm getting anywhere. Um, And I've heard this from people who've sometimes been practicing for 20 years. It's like, why do I still feel all this stuff? Um, Well, part of the answer there is you're you're a human being.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs)
0: Trying to lose that. Good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) But the other piece to that is, um, I think, keeping your practice fresh, keeping it spontaneous, fresh, respond to the moment. The more tools we have in our toolkit, Um, I think the more we feel capacious enough to respond to whatever we're dealing with in any given moment.
1: This summer in Boston, the T, or subway, has been experiencing even more problems than usual. After a derailment in mid-June, delays and overcrowding are pretty much the norm. One recent evening on my commute home, I found myself in a sweltering, jam-packed train car. We'd move 20 feet or so, and then suddenly stop and sit for 10 minutes. We'd move 30 feet or so, then stop and sit for another 10 minutes. As this went on for several stops, train passengers started getting frustrated. The conversation between the people on my right grew louder. The person on my left not wearing headphones started to blare his music. My heart was beating fast, and my patience was beginning to wear thin. I needed to get off that train. But then... I took a deep breath, opened up the meditation app on my phone, cranked the volume up on my headphones, and closed my eyes. Even though I was anxious about what my fellow passengers might have been thinking about me, I tried my best to deflect those concerns and to follow the directions of the guided meditation. And as I sat there on the tee, like a sardine in a tin can, I meditated. It was hard, very, very hard but I was able to resist every urge I had to open my eyes. And by the time I got to my stop in Dorchester, I felt less tense and less anxious than I had before. The research company IBIS World estimated that, in 2017, mindfulness meditation-related businesses in the U.S. generated over $1 billion in revenue. A figure that's perhaps not that surprising, actually. After all, there's really not a single activity we could undergo in which we can't, with focused attention, be mindful about it. One can work mindfully or parent mindfully. We can exercise, eat, and even spend our money mindfully. And as I learned on that sweltering subway car in downtown Boston, we can even commute mindfully. The Harvard Religion Beat is a pop-up podcast brought to you by Harvard Divinity School. It's hosted and produced by me, Jonathan Beasley, and edited by Heather Latham. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you shared it with family and friends. Heck, even share it with a few enemies. If you don't already, please follow us on social and subscribe to our e-newsletter. You can find that info in the episode description or you're smart people, just Google us. Also, if you've got a curious mind, and I know you do, because you're listening to this podcast, then go inside the minds of PhDs at Harvard with the Veritalk podcast. Veritalk is produced at Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. In each three-episode miniseries of Veritalk, you'll hear how PhD students from different fields are trying to answer really big questions about the world, like, why are vegan diets suddenly popular? Could King Kong and Godzilla actually exist? Do probiotics work? Check it out in your favorite podcast app or at gsas.harvard.edu forward slash Veritalk. Until next time.